Hey everyone, this is T-Roll, the host of the Campus Outreach Podcast. We're taking a break from our normal podcasts over the summer, and instead we'll be posting audio versions of various talks that were given at our beach project from earlier this summer. If you are interested in viewing the video form of the following message, please go to cobirmingham.org forward slash campus talks to find all of our talks from this year's beach project. Thanks so much and enjoy today's talk. Lord Jesus, you're such a good God, you're such a forgiving and merciful God, and I pray that tonight that you would show up through your word and show us a fresh glimpse of your goodness and your glory so that we would fall more in love with you, and out of that love for you, desire to live lives that honor and please you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. If you've got your Bible, open up to Genesis chapter 4. We're not making very fast progress over here, okay? We're just kind of picking up where we left off. And let me just tell you, be honest with you, what I was asked to do. Take 25 minutes or less and do an overview of the entire Old Testament. 39 books. Piece of cake, right? No way. So, uh, here's what we're going to do to kind of do that. We're really just going to look at the first third, roughly, of the book of Genesis, and here's why. If you really get the first part of the book of Genesis, all the themes, I think most of the big themes of the Old Testament are really foreshadowed in the beginning of Genesis. And so we're going to see that to help us understand all the Old Testament. Okay, So let's start in Genesis chapter 4, start in verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. And now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. Now, what do we see here? Adam and Eve, they were forgiven by God. They didn't die, but there are the consequences of sin. But life still kind of works. They are married. They have babies. They're Kids are raising animals, taking care of animals, working the ground, doing normal life like God had commanded them. Rule the earth, be fruitful and multiply. But we also see there's this aspect of worship. They're seeking to maintain the relationship with God through some sort of sacrifice, bringing an offering. Now, the Bible never tells where this was instructed, but almost certainly after God killed that animal in Genesis 3 to clothe Adam and Eve, he probably taught them something about the idea of sacrifice and making offerings. And the point was, you're supposed to bring the best stuff. And that's why God said, I don't like Cain's offering, because it's kind of like Cain just said, ah, I'll bring something, I'll bring anything, whatever. You know, like going to church, just tossing a $10 bill on the plate, like whatever. But Abel took it more serious, and he's like, no, I want to take the best of my sheep, the best of my cattle, and offer them to the Lord. Now again, part of why we're doing this talk, this overview of the Old Testament, is for a lot of us, when we read the Old Testament, we're kind of like, let's just be honest, the Old Testament is weird. Right? The New Testament is hard enough. That seems kind of ancient. The Old Testament just seems like bizarre. And so we just skip it. But imagine that, like, again, I've been wearing out the illustrations with my daughter Sophia, but Sophia uh, is in this math class right now, and all her older brothers are older than her. They've been through math, and so she's heard them around the dinner table say things like, trigonometry is stupid, calculus is stupid, why do I have to take calculus? I'll never use it in real life. And that's pretty much true unless you're like an engineer or rocket scientist, something like that, right? But so Sophia now, anytime she comes up against something in math she doesn't like, she tries to use that line. So like 
fractions get introduced. And she's like, fractions are stupid. I hate fractions. I'll never use fractions. And I'm like, ah, baby, actually, you're going to use fractions in real life, okay? And if you try to go through life just saying, I'm going to ignore fractions, it's not going to work out well for you. Imagine... Imagine if God wrote you a personal letter, like a one-on-one Jesus-to-you letter. It came in the mail, like on sheets of gold or something like that. And it was a five-page letter. But the first four pages were just a little weird and hard to understand, so you said, ah, screw it, I'll just throw those in the trash and just read the fifth page. You'd be an idiot, right? God wrote you a personal level. It's from God. Even if the first four pages are a little hard to understand, it would be worth taking time and energy to understand them because they're from God, right? The majority of the Bible, basically 80% of it, is the Old Testament. So why are we going to do this? Because, I, listen, I'll be honest. I'm in full-time ministry, Bible teacher. I agree. There's a lot of the Old Testament. It's like, dude, that's weird. It's bizarre. But if we'll take the time to try to understand it, it really can enrich and help your life. And they're really not that distant from us. I mean, what are we supposed to learn from this little weird story I just read by way of introduction about sacrifice? Because we don't make sacrifices anymore. Not like they did, but you're supposed to sacrifice for your life. And you know what? God wants the best part of your life. He wants the first fruits of your life. He doesn't want the leftovers, right? I woke up, I had a long day, 17 hours doing everything else. Oh yeah, I'm supposed to read my Bible before I go to bed. Two verses, okay, I fell asleep. Not what he wants. He wants the best parts, the first parts. There's a lot we can learn here. So, three points that we're going to look at. Okay, all starting with the letter C. Try to make it easy to remember. Covenant, command, and cutting. A covenant, a command, and cutting. So flip over to chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. And let's start in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was very sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. That doesn't mean he regretted it like I'm a man of state. It's just that he's so sad about it. He's brokenhearted because people became so wicked. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Okay? Now listen, these are the two themes that really drive the entire Old Testament. In some sense, they drive the whole New Testament. In some sense, they drive all of the universe and creation. Is that God is a just, holy, righteous God who hates sin. It hurts sin. It grieves and it breaks his heart to the point that he says, I can't take it. I'm going to wipe out humanity. But there's another part of him that says, but I love, but I love people. I hate sin, but I love sinners. And I want to find a way to forgive sinners and show them grace. And that just comes up over and over again, all over the Bible, all over life. Okay? So look what's going to happen. Skip down to verse 17. For behold, still God speaking, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die. Pretty darn serious. But... I will establish my covenant with you, he's talking to this man named Noah, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons with you. Now, covenant, what is a covenant? It's kind of like a deal, it's kind of like a treaty, it's kind of like an agreement, it's kind of like a contract, but it's better. I mean, we basically, covenant is one of those words maybe you've heard before, but we really never use it in 21st century English, not much. The main place we would use it, if you've ever heard somebody use the word of covenant, What's typically the context where somebody used the word covenant if you've heard it before? Marriage. 
Because marriage is more than just a deal or a contract. It's like a super big deal. So here's kind of my personalized definition for covenant. Okay? It's a unilateral, I'll come back and explain what that means, a unilateral treaty, kind of like nations make when they're trying to settle a war, a unilateral treaty with consequences and implications. Now, unilateral in the Bible, this one, because it's really one person, and I'll explain more of what that means. Two people entering in, but you need to say, God didn't say, hey, Noah, let's sit down and have a negotiation. How do you want to do this thing? God just said, no, no, no. Sit down and shut up, Noah, and I'm going to tell you how it's going to work. I'm going to kill everybody, but because I like you, I'm going to save you and your family. And Noah's like, sounds like a good deal to me. Right? But there was no negotiation. God just said, this is the way it's going to be. Listen, in some sense, it's just God's promise. I'm going to take care of you, Noah, because I love you, because I'm saving you. Now, flip over to chapter 8. Chapter 8, it's going to be a lot of flipping around tonight, all right? Verse 18, this is after the flood. Most of us have heard the story of the flood before. God sends a flood, and he literally wipes out all of humanity except for this one family of eight. And did you notice this is another little important thing? God said, hey, Noah, you found grace. I'm making a covenant with you, Noah. But because I'm making a covenant with just you, Noah, your whole family gets sins. You notice that? That's a big theme in the Bible. God likes to work through families. He values families. The whole family got in just because of Noah. One guy. Look at verse 18. Genesis 8, 18. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. And Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of the clean animals and some of the clean every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike again strike down every living, living creature as I have done. So, after the flood's over, after these eight people got saved, nobody else. What's the first thing they do to come out? They worship. They offer sacrifices. And they do something even more. I mean, Cain and Abel were offering sacrifices, but they're offering these special kind of sacrifices, burnt sacrifices, where the whole thing is just burned up. And it's a symbol of, I ought to be burned up in God's wrath, but I didn't get burned up. And so I worship God. And did you notice they built an altar? This is another thing, okay? Again, so many of these themes in the beginning of Genesis are foreshadowing what's coming later. Cain and Abel just used to worship God. We don't know exactly where. What, start, what starts to happen with Noah, and we'll see it later with another guy named Abraham, is they said, we need to build a place. Worshiping God is so special. It's so unique. It's such a privilege to worship God. I mean, everybody else got killed, and we got left alive to worship God. They build this altar, and what will happen later in the nation of Israel, they'll build tabernacles. They'll build a temple, which is a place where God said, I'll meet you. I'll meet you at that place. Okay? Now, second point, uh, flip over to chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Command. There's a covenant. God makes this unilateral agreement. Really a promise. But then there's a command. Look in chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You might want to underline that because it's so good and so true and so radical. And we'll talk maybe in a minute about the implications. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. And Abram 
was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And what's going on here? Okay? Again, God's going to make a covenant with Abram. He's got this relationship. But part of it, did you notice? Again, no negotiation. God just said, here's the way it's going to be. And a lot of what he's saying is good, right? He's like, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you so much that everybody that blesses you, I'll bless them. And if anybody ever gives you any of the business, and this is the olden translation, right? I'll give them the business. I'll take care of your enemies, Abram. I'll fight your battles. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to bless you. But you've got to obey me. Even when I tell you to do stuff that sounds crazy. Like I'm telling you, leave the city you're living in and go somewhere else. Where am I supposed to go? Just trust me. I'll let you know when you get there. Just take off. Pack your stuff. And Abram does it. Now again, part of being in a covenant relationship with God, part of being in a saving relationship with God, is God does just make all these promises, but then because of that, I'm supposed to obey. Now, now hang with me for just a second. This is a super important point. A biblical saving covenant is not a if-then covenant. You understand what I mean by that? It's not a covenant that says, if you do this, if you obey me, then I will bless you. That's not the way it works. It's a, because I've already done this, you should do that. Does that make sense? A guy I quoted this morning, a guy named Sinclair Ferguson, he says, a saving covenant in the Bible, it doesn't have any conditions for us. It does have massive implications. Do you understand the difference there? Conditions would be like God had said, hey, Abram, if you'll leave, then I'll bless you. Implications are, hey, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, but now I'm telling you to leave. And that's the picture of the Christian life. God's already blessed me. I should want to obey because of that. He's such a great God because I love him. I'm willing to leave everything. Skip over to chapter 15. There's a covenant, there's a command, and there's a cutting. Genesis chapter 15, starting verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Hey, you know, if your eyes are starting to glaze over, you know, snap them back for just a second here. I know this is a lot. And again, I know it can seem distant. It's like, how does this apply to me? But think about this. Abram was this guy already in a relationship with God. What was going on? He was struggling with fear. He was struggling with doubt. You ever been there? We can relate to these people. They're just like us in so many ways. Why was he struggling with fear and doubt? Because did you hear the promise that God made? We read in chapter 12. God said, Abram, I'm going to make you the father of a family that gets so big, it's going to be a whole nation, and that nation is going to be so awesome, it's literally going to bless every single family on the whole planet. I mean, that's a pretty astronomical promise. And when God made that promise to Abram, he was 75 years old. Well, now we pick up maybe a decade later, he's in his 80s, he's like, hey, I ain't got no kids. So your promise don't seem real, God. Your promise doesn't seem accurate. Your promise, your word doesn't seem trustworthy. Have you ever felt that way? I have. And what should you do when you feel that way? You pray, you be honest, you talk about it. If I don't have a kid, God, all I've got is a servant. 
I don't want to leave my stuff to my servant. I want a kid like you promised me I'd have. And God says, I'm going to do it. Go outside. Look at the stars. You're going to have more kids than that. And then it says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Have you ever thought about this? How did people get saved in the Old Testament before Jesus? You ever thought about that? You ever heard somebody say, well, in the Old Testament it was different. You got saved because of sacrifices. You got saved because of thinking mammoths, blah, blah, blah. All that's wrong. You got saved in the Old Testament the exact same way you get saved in the New Testament. We look back towards the crucified Messiah. They looked forward towards the crucified Messiah that wasn't, was, had not yet come. By faith, by faith alone, through grace alone, Abraham believes and he's saved. Okay? Now look at verse 7. He's still struggling with faith. Has that ever been you? You're struggling, and maybe you have like the greatest quiet time in the universe, greatest time of reading the Bible. You know, you come and Miles leads us in worship, and you're like, dude, I was just raising my hands and crying. I've never cried before in church. I had like an experience with God. I'm never going to doubt God again. And you wake up the next morning and you feel depressed and like you're doubting God, right? Because we're all an emotional roller coaster. We're not as steady as we're supposed to be, we're not as strong. Look at Abram. He's still dying, doubting. Verse 7. And he said to him, this is God speaking to him to encourage him. I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, oh Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He's still doubting. Okay. <clears throat> Keep going. Verse 9. And he said to him, bring me. This, this is going to get really weird, but it's really interesting and it's really, really good. You'll see it with me. Verse 9, he said to him, bring me a heifer. When's the last time you used heifer in a sentence, okay? Heifer's in the Bible. Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, and he cut them in half, and he laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. Does that sound weird? God says, hey, go get me all these animals. And Abraham runs, gets the animals. He's still called Abram right now. And then starts cutting the animals in half. God didn't say to do that. Why is Abraham doing that? Abraham. Because back then, if you had some like mighty empire, the Assyrian Empire or something like that, and then you had like maybe some little small city over here, and this small city was scared, and this small city needed somebody to protect it, the empire might come to the little city, and the king might come to say the mayor of the little city, and the king would say, if you will serve me, which means like, give me half of your stuff, right? I don't know if y'all walk, watch The Walking Dead, kind of like Negan used to treat him, right? Like, give me half of your stuff, but I'll protect you. That was the deal. And what they would do is they'd go get some animals, they'd cut them in half, and the mayor would have to walk in between the animals. And you know what he was essentially saying? I'm going to keep this deal with you, and if I don't, guess what's going to happen to me? I get chopped in half. So, that's what is happening God is making that kind of deal, so to speak, with Abram. And look at how Abram is going to respond, the same way that you and I probably would. Verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. He's terrified. And you would be too if you were in his shoes, and so would I. Because, listen, he's like, I'm making this kind of agreement with God that if I screw up, I'm going to get cut in half? I mean, I'm already struggling with doubt and fear. I'm not going to make it one day. But then look what happens. Let's get down to verse 17. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot 
and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring, I give this land. Now, what is that? A lot of times in the Old Testament, the Bible, when you see fire, smoke and fire, what does it represent? The presence of God. Like when he comes down on top of Mount Sinai to meet Moses and give him the Ten Commandments. And what's happening here, again, remember the way these treaties work. The great king and the mayor of the little city made the treaty. The mayor had to walk between the animals. The great king didn't. But God says, hey, Abraham, I know that you're not strong enough. I know that you're not godly enough. I know that you're not faithful enough to always keep the implications of this covenant. So I'm going to walk through the animals. I'm saying, I'll be faithful to do my part, the big king's part, but I'll also be faithful to do your part for you. It's mysterious, but that's what God's saying. Now, one more chapter I want us to look at very briefly. Flip over to chapter 17. If you think we've been a little weird so far, just hang on, it gets weirder. Now we're going to talk about circumcision. Okay? And that's one of those things you're just like, now it's why that's in the Bible. And why do we have to talk about it? It's just kind of weird. It's just kind of awkward to sit here and talk about circumcision. But it's in the Bible. And listen, one of the reasons we're doing this whole talk is so that when you come up against weird stuff in the Bible, you won't just skip it. But you'll slow down and you go deep and you'll think and you'll pray and you'll wrestle to try to understand what are the implications for my life because there are implications. Chapter 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I, make, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. See, it keeps getting better. He did say you're going to be the father of a nation and now he's like, you're going to be the father of many nations. You're going to touch all the nations of the earth. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. That's why I keep slipping up and calling him Abraham. I knew this was coming. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. And look, it's going to get better again. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. It keeps getting better. Not just you're going to have nations, you're going to have kings. Right? If you know anything about the Old Testament, there's these famous kings. King Saul, King David, King Solomon. And this is this foreshadowing, this is prediction that all these kings are coming. What's God doing? He's already made a covenant, but he's, he's establishing it. He's making it deeper. He's making it clearer. He's making it more certain through a sign. What's the sign? Let's get down to verse 10. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Well, why did God choose this as a sign? We don't know all the reasons, but here's probably our best understanding. What needs to happen for us to be saved and forgiven and put in right relationship with God is the sinful part of us needs to be cut out so we can be restored to a place of innocence like Adam and Eve had in the garden. And so this was a symbol of God saying, I'm going to cut this sin out of your heart. But it's going to hurt. It's bloody, but I'll do it. Okay. Now, and then one day there's going to be a king that's going to come. He's going to rule the nation of Israel. He's going to lead them into godliness. And let's wrap it up like this. There's a lot we can take away from this overview, but let me try to summarize it really briefly. The first thing is this. Maybe here's the most important thing. 
God saves his people through faith alone, by grace alone, and then after we're saved, out of a love and joy and thankfulness to him, we're supposed to obey. We've been saying that all day because that's one of the major things of the Bible. I don't obey to get saved. I obey because I'm already saved and I'll obey gladly and joyfully. And he's so gracious, I don't have to obey perfectly. I'm just supposed to obey sincerely. But the second thought that we should walk away with is all these things we looked at, they are foreshadowing what's coming in the rest of the Old Testament. There's going to be a nation of Israel. They're going to have kings. They're going to have a temple. Okay. The third thing, though, and here's the bigger, deeper thing. All these things don't just point to the rest of the Old Testament. They point to what comes in the New Testament. And let me just literally take one minute and talk about how it does that. We'll be done. We're supposed to offer God our best, but we never really do that. But you know what God did for us? He offered us his best. There was an ark of salvation in the Old Testament. If you could get inside that ark, you'd be saved from the wrath of God. There's an ark in the New Testament, but it's a person. And if you can get into him spiritually, you'll be saved. God loves to make deals with families. And a lot of times when he saves the head of the family, he saves the whole family. And oh yeah, you know what? He made a covenant with this one man, and if you can get into this one man's spiritual family, you'll be saved. Not because of what you did, but because of what that one man did. God did come to earth to meet with his people, and it wasn't just in a temple. He literally came to earth to meet with us. God made a sacrifice on our behalf. They got consumed with his wrath. There was one true king that came to rule Israel and the whole world perfectly to lead us into godliness. And he got to the end of his life and he should have been celebrated, but he wasn't. He was cut off for our behalf, just like we're supposed to be cut off. And we need to see that and understand that and rejoice in that and live our whole lives as a response to that. Lord Jesus, we love you. Our words can never be enough. Our thoughts and our lives could never be enough. And we're glad they don't have to be enough because you've already been enough for us in our place. But I do pray for myself and everybody here in this. There would be such a rich, deep understanding of who you are and your glory and your salvation that we would really rejoice to live our whole lives as a living sacrifice to please you. In your name we pray this. Amen. Thank you.